and welcome to episode 1222, that's 1222 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs, joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Hello, Ben. Hello. How are you? I'm excited for this episode. Great. I know that usually when we have a guest and then the guest asks, how are you? You answer for both of us and you say, we're doing well. Mm-hmm. And I never give you permission to do that, but <laughs> I guess you can hereby consider this permission for the future. In this episode, we'll be talking to Rob Arthur about the baseball and the uh, the commission that studied any changes in the baseball, commissioned by Major League Baseball. Keep saying commission and baseball as I introduce this segment. Later on, we'll be talking to Mitchell Lickman about baseball and gambling, so touching on some recent news. But we also have a little bit of what is to us breaking news and what is to mm-hmm. you, the listener, old hat. Hanley Ramirez has been designated for assignment by the Red Sox to make room for Dustin Pedroia. Hanley Ramirez, between 2014 and 2015, was signed by the Red Sox for four years and $88 million, I believe it was. Pablo Sandoval that same offseason was signed for five years and more than $90 million. And over their official spans as Red Sox, Hanley and Pablo batted 2,418 times. They had a WRC plus of 96. They played bad defense and they were worth a grand total of negative 0.6 Fangraphs war. (laughs) So, Uh. not we almost uh, made it, though. He almost <laughs> got there to the end of the contract, but not quite. Uh, was it not this past offseason where Hanley was feeling optimistic, he was healthy, he was recovered, and, and I believe he said he was going to steal 30 bases? <laughs> well, I don't have a direct quote. Well. He hit he well did. in April. Yeah. And then. So uh, he got up to four, four stolen bases. Now he did have seven double six home runs. He wasn't a complete waste of space. But at the end of the day, the 71 and 91 Red Sox tried to jumpstart. Their lineup with two of the premium free agents available to them, and they were worse than giving opportunities to random guys out of AAA. So <laughs> this is a useful reminder that free agency is terrible. Maybe after <laughs> this offseason, shouldn't be saying that. I don't know. But Hanley Ramirez this season ends up being worth negative 0.1 more. I don't know what kind of job he can get. I don't know who is really in the market for someone like Hanley Ramirez. But on the other hand, Matt Kemp is still playing regularly for the Dodgers. So (laughs) what do I know about how baseball works? Yeah, I know this news was seen as sort of surprising, but it isn't really when you look at the larger picture. I think this has been discussed with Hanley before. I mean, he was a sub-replacement player last year, and he has been a sub-replacement player this year. He is, at this point, a DH, basically, who doesn't hit like a league average hitter, and that is not a valuable player. So you can sort of see why this happens. And Pedroia comes back. You need a roster spot. There goes Hanley. And speaking of free agency not working out well, it really hasn't in the Red Sox case. I saw this tweet and a fun fact, and it definitely made me say, wow, this is from Brian McPherson. And he says, Hanley Ramirez was just a matter of months from getting to the end of the four-year deal he signed with the Red Sox. Between 2008 and 2017, the Red Sox signed 16 free agents to multi-year contracts. Of those 16, two reached the end of his contract, still on the Red Sox roster. And those two were David Ross and Chris Young. So, yeah. (laughs) If you can develop from within, and the Red Sox have had a lot of success doing that, then 
that kind of works out better for you often, which is sort of how we ended up in this place where teams are no longer spending on free agents and players are not making enough money. But if you're looking at the Red Sox recent track record, you can sort of see how that happened. It is worth recalling that when Henley Ramirez was actually when he was a prospect and he was a highly rated prospect, his minor league numbers were not very good. So he was he was initially a story of how minor league numbers might not tell you everything. And some players just have tools that they put together at the major league level. And when Hanley Ramirez was in his mid-20s, he was genuinely one of the very best players in all of baseball. He did Mm -hmm. everything, except, I guess, play great defense. But anyway, (laughs) he was a shortstop for the Marlins and some laughably bad defensive infields, but they they could hit. He could hit. He could run. He was worth more than 14 and a half wins above replacement in his two seasons, age 24 and 25. And then he he turned 30, and it just kind of fell off the map. So Mm -hmm. Hanley Ramirez kind of following... I don't know if you want to call it the Ken Griffey Jr. course or the Andrew Jones course or just the players get older and worse course. But Mm -hmm. Hanley Ramirez, not a distinguished end of his career. I don't know what comes next. I don't know if he'll get another opportunity, but I guess most players don't have distinguished ends of their careers, which is why we (laughs) celebrate the ones who do. Yeah. That's true. Well, in happier news for the Red Sox, Mookie Betts is great, and you wrote about him, and you found a way to comp him to Barry Bonds. As I understand it, he has essentially been Barry Bonds with two strikes this season. Is that right? Am I oversimplifying things? Well, I realized as I was uh, was doing this research that I found a way to compare Mookie Betts to Barry Bonds because of the way that Betts is hit with two strikes. But another way that you could compare Betts to Barry Bonds is because of the way that he's hit overall. <laughs> You don't even have to dig deep. Like, <laughs> yeah. Mookie Betts has a WRC plus of 212. Now, That's Barry good. Bonds topped out at 244, but there's that 200 threshold that players aren't supposed to exceed. But in any case, uh, yeah, Mookie Betts, he's, uh, he's, been as, he's been about as good as Barry Bonds overall, and he's been about as good as Barry Bonds batting with two strikes. He's been actually, to this point, of course, it's early, but where Betts is now would be the greatest two-strike hitting season on record, which goes back about 30 years. What uh, Mookie Betts has done in part is with two strikes, he says, I don't really care about strikeouts anymore. I just want to drive the ball, hit it hard. That's great. Strikeouts don't really matter that much anymore. But what he's also done with two strikes is not swing at pitches out of the zone, like almost at all. Mm -hmm. He's cut his rate almost in half, maybe more like two-thirds. But in any case, he's swinging just as often at two-strike pitches in the zone, which is good because you should never take a two-strike pitch in the zone, but he's just not swinging at two-strike pitches out of the zone, which I like as a a pure test of discipline Mm -hmm. because when you have two strikes, pitcher's trying to put you away, you're seeing really good pitches, the pitcher wants you to chase, and you are already thinking, I need to swing, I need to protect. And Mookie Betts isn't chasing. So long and short here, Mookie Betts is basically a a perfect hitter i don't know how perfect he can remain because he still ultimately doesn't have like barry bonds peak power or mike trap peak power but when you are this good at getting the barrel to the ball and when you don't chase you're just fantastic mookie betts doesn't care about strikeouts now and his strikeout rate is the same as it's been like his whole life yeah just it's it's absurd so i uh by the week, I am less dismissive of the conversation that puts bets in a trout tier. Trout is still better. I still take trout. I know you still take trout. People mm-hmm. should still take trout, but I see it. I see how you can get away with making the comparison and not feeling like you're being stupid. Yeah. In other AL East news, John Jaso attended a Rays game, <laughs> and uh, there are pictures, there's video. 
it seems like he went down to the field to talk to some of the Rays and there was a very concerned looking usher who wasn't sure if she should let him down there because he's John Jaso and he doesn't look like a very recent professional and major league baseball player. <laughs> this is just, I think we need to talk to John Jaso. I think we need to try to have John Jaso on the podcast. He has sort of been a podcast hero, podcast mascot. I think it, it's time. I think it needs to happen. We need to hear him say such is life in our ears. I mean, yeah, I, I think that if we had John Jaso on the podcast, it would be like the, the boss level, right, of a video game. Yeah. I don't know if they still make video games like they used to, uh, but yeah, I remember video games from like <laughs> 20 years ago. And then you, what if we get to interview John Jaso, is that, I mean, short of then getting to interview like a three-handed, one-legged Mike Trout, then <laughs> I don't know what else there is for the podcast. That's it. It's over. Pretty we much. defeated podcasting. <laughs> yeah, he was wearing like a, a tie-dye tank top with just long dreadlocks, and he looks very laid back. Looks like retirement is going great for him. Obviously, he is not sailing around the world currently. He hasn't gone very far at all, it looks like. He even brought a beer down to the field. Anyway, he looks like he's doing retirement right, and I want to find out about it. So if anyone can help us get in touch with John Jay, so I've put one little feeler out, but uh, we're, we're going to try to make this happen. And I also wanted to mention that the Angels ruined my weekend plans. My <laughs> wife and I were planning an Angels brunch for Sunday. We were going to have a bunch of people over to watch Shohei Otani because he was scheduled to pitch in New York against Masahiro Tanaka at 1 o'clock. It's perfect brunch time. We were going to have a gathering and just all watch Otani together. And then they pushed him back. And I guess he'll be hitting, but it's just not the same. There's workload management going on. They say he's fine. I was hoping that the workload management that we would see would be a heavier workload just because I want to see more Otani, but we're getting the opposite instead. They're being prudent and cautious, and I'm sure it makes sense, but give the people what they want. But, you know, he, he hits so well. Every day he does something. He walks, he gets a double, he gets a couple hits. The other day he had a game-winning hit and he stole his first base. He just, he's good. He's just good at everything. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, one o'clock, I don't care about your New York standards. It's too late for brunch. You're having late. You're getting to dinner. Just no. have breakfast in the morning and then do something with your day. You're being ridiculous. Now <laughs> you're going to be tardy. What, what better thing could you do? Just do, eat before that. How do you do? How do you do? You, do you eat before a one o'clock brunch? I mean, I'm not really a big bruncher regularly because I'm up at all hours and I might just. I don't even know what you would call it if you eat in the middle of the night. Is it breakfast? Is it dinner? I don't know. That's fourth meal, right? That's the... Yeah, sure. I guess so. So I'm not someone who goes out to brunch and has the mimosa and all of that, but this seemed like a nice occasion that we could do it until Mike Sosha ruined everything or Billy Epler. I blame both of them. Jumping back real quick, I did see the uh, the gif of... Uh, I saw it was a tweet that someone had said, oh, the usher doesn't... The usher, this usher isn't taking any of John Jaso's shit. And I saw a guy yeah. on like a tie-dye tank top walking down to the usher, like talking to him sternly. And I thought, oh, that's a funny joke. Yeah. Look at the guy who looks like John Jaso. Zero part of me believed that was actually John Jaso <laughs> looking at the GIF. So yeah. credit to him. And yep. as far as the Otani thing goes, I know they're saying it's workload management. It starts once a week. I would be lying if I said this didn't raise a little bit of alarm. Mm -hmm. I don't think that the Angels would... If something were minorly wrong with Otani or he's just feeling a little bit of soreness, I don't think that they would necessarily admit that because they know the frenzy that it would create. Yeah. But 
I can't think of... Look, I know he's doing something other people don't do. I know it's probably exhausting. Maybe he does just need a break. There's probably a 50 or 60% chance that's what this is, but it makes me... A little bit, very modestly concerned, 3 out of 10, 4 out of 10. And I know if you look at the tweets, people are like, oh, they just don't want him to face the Yankees. He's scared of the Yankees. But if there's one team the Angels really want to beat right now, it's probably wild card competition like the Yankees. And they would want their best pitcher to be trying to do it. So this seems like one of those things that they're trying to say is just innocuous. It's innocent. We just want to give him a breather. But I sure don't know, man. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, you have a chat to get to. Let me see if I can cram this in under the wire. I wanted to salute listener Logan, who said in the Facebook group that he just referenced TOPS Plus to make a point in a meeting at work, and it worked, and this is his greatest career achievement. And so I asked him for the context. He said, let's see if I can do this without putting everyone to sleep. No, you can't. That is the rule of TOPS Plus. (laughs) There's no way to talk about it without putting everyone to sleep. But Logan says, we were discussing customer satisfaction survey methodology, exciting already, approaches to gathering end-user feedback, and how to properly understand the context of survey results that we inherited from a prior team using methodology we probably wouldn't have used if he were involved. I saw an opportunity and presented TOPS Plus as an example of a metric that provides its own context within the metric itself. Realistically, I probably could have used an actual metric we currently use, but that didn't seem nearly as fun. So I hope it went over well and that you're all finding ways to use TOPS Plus in your daily lives the way that Jeff does in the Play Index. I have no response to this. (laughs) All right. Well, happy birthday to Bartolo Colon who turned 45 this week and is currently leading the American League in walk rate and strikeout to walk rate. That is pretty incredible. And last thing before I let you go belatedly to your chat, we talked on the previous podcast about things that players could do intentionally that on the surface seem bad but actually are beneficial Mm. in certain cases. Mm -hmm. This was the Bob Wickman intentional Bach question. We got two submissions from listeners, one from Doug. He reminded me of, in 2016, Chase Anderson intentionally drilled Alfredo Simone in order to prevent a runner from stealing home. There's a video of this. I recall it as I see it now, and I think we might have even talked about it on the podcast at the time, but that was how it worked. There was a guy stealing home. He got a good break, and so Anderson just hit Alfredo Simone so that the guy wouldn't be able to steal home, and Simone was not pleased about this, but excellent example, Doug. And the other one was from listener John, who says was listening to your podcast and the topic of the intentional buck came up and it reminded me of Alfredo Griffin's intentional strikeout back in the early 90s. The Blue Jays had a big lead in the fifth inning, but it was raining hard and we wanted to make sure the game was official so that the lead wouldn't be washed out if the game was ended. So he intentionally struck out just to hurry things along. He may have struck out anyway. It was Alfredo Griffin, but still, he he hastened the process. So two good examples to add to the list. Big fan of the intentional hit by pitch. Although you got to be precise. You got to make sure that you hit him. <laughs> yes. But yeah, I think that's what you should always do. All right. So we will take a quick break. We'll be back with Rob Arthur to talk about the ball, how it's different, and how that has affected home runs. We have some kind of closure on this, but not complete closure. Rob will explain. And then we will also talk to Mitchell Lickman about his history of betting on baseball for decades and how it's gotten harder and harder and harder over time. So we will be back in just a second. Smoke on in your motorboat. You gotta keep it till the pieces flow. 
I lied. I said we were taking a quick break and we would be back with a guest. Well, I didn't really lie. That will happen. But I am joined by a different guest from the one I said would just be joined by. It's Meg Rally of Fangrass. Hey, Meg. Hi. You were here because Jerry DePoto just did something. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew this would happen. Of course, he picked this time to do it. So... Uh, just behind the scenes here, making of, this podcast was completely recorded, and then Jerry DePoto struck, and he completed a trade. <laughs> Jeff had already left for his vacation. He was on his way out of the country, and he had to turn his car around and return to his keyboard to blog about what Jerry DePoto did. <laughs> I don't know whether you told him to do that, or Carson did, or he took it upon himself, but he literally turned his car around because of Jerry <laughs> <laughs> what are like Jerry's uh, least convenient timings of trades? Didn't he do one on a major holiday yeah, at one point? I think it's still probably the the Taiwan Walker, Catel Marte <laughs> for Gene Segura and Mitch Haniger trade, which was literally the night before Thanksgiving. Yes, that was uh, it. <laughs> it's like, Jerry, go spend some time with your family, man. They miss you. I bet they love you a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so they were probably waiting by the door for him to take them away somewhere for the long weekend. And he said, no, (laughs) I have to trade Andrew Moore to the Rays for Alex Colomay and Denard Spann. So I don't think I legally can play the music that Michael Bauman wrote for occasions such as this. I don't know. He'd probably say I could, but it's spur (laughs) of the moment. So we have to talk about what Jerry DePoto did here. And Everyone knew he was going to do something. Jeff and I talked about this the other day about how he didn't really have anything to trade, and yet you knew he would somehow trade because he just needed to. The Mariners, everyone is hurt. Second basemen are dropping like flies. He had to do something, and he did. So what did Jerry DePoto do? Sure. So, uh, like you said, we kind of knew that that some move would be coming. He sent uh, Andrew Moore, who sort of a while ago was the top arm in the Mariners system for whatever that was worth and had sort of a brief call up last year. Uh, but it started the year in double A to the Rays for Alex Conley and Denard Span. And I think we can think about the, the Rays side of this uh, later, I guess. But mm-hmm. from a Mariners perspective, this makes a ton of sense to me. I mean, yeah. you know, obviously the the big injuries have come at and, you know, sort of absences have come at second base, but they are getting shockingly thin in the outfield with D. Gordon moving back to the infield. So I think that this provides them some options. You know, Guillermo Heredia is playing really well, actually, and I think is sort of starting to play his way out of his platoon split mm-hmm. reputation. So I'll be curious to see uh, if span ends up being platooned with him or maybe provides an opportunity for Ben Gamble to go sort himself out in Tacoma or something like that. But it gives them, you know, some some depth there. And then from the pitching side, you know, I think is a really nice compliment to Edwin Diaz at closer. Juan Nicasio was their big reliever acquisition in the offseason. And he's had uh, some shaky outings, to put it charitably, and his velocity has not been where uh, it once was. And so I think that this gives them a lot more options out of the bullpen. They can put Colome in the eighth. They can, you know, give Diaz a couple of days off if they need, because you do worry about um, sort of overuse with him just because, you know, he's still a young guy and they're in a lot of games where it calls for a save so yeah. I really I really like it for the Mariners uh you know it's it's always you always are a little nervous when you're giving up on on uh starters before they really have a chance to fully mature but I think that you know even the most optimistic projections for Andrew Moore was that he was sort of a back of the rotation guy and 
you know, as we've been saying, this is really it for the Mariners probably (laughs) (laughs) in terms of their contention window. So I I like that they're being aggressive and trying to do what they need to to stay in this race that looked like they were going to start to fall out of. Yeah, right. They just had no outfielders left, and Andrew Moore is, what, 23, so maybe he'll get better at some point, but by the time he does, the Mariners will have gotten worse, and so it it won't matter. (laughs) So I guess it it makes sense, and Denard Spann's playing pretty well. I, I looked at his headshot on baseball reference just a few minutes ago and he looks like he's roughly 53 (laughs) Uh, the last few years have not been kind to denard span at least on photo day in spring training he looks like the before photo in a just for men ad or something which i i guess i'm discriminating against graying hair which is not nice of me but it has aged him but he's a still pretty good baseball player yeah he you know when when i heard that the the trade had happened i you know, I just hadn't had reason to really pay close attention to how Denard Span was doing this year. <laughs> and he's playing, a, yeah, he's playing a lot better than I knew him to be playing. I mean, yeah. I think right now he has a 114 WRC plus and, uh, you know, he's walking a bunch. So he's he's definitely a useful player. I, I think the gray makes him look very distinguished. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sort of admire that he's willing to go with it, you know, in a game where I think people are very, con- you know, self-conscious about their yeah, ages. I'm judging and, him right now. Yeah. So. <laughs> and he's just like, no, I don't care. So, yeah, uh, yeah but he's uh, gray and all having uh, sort of a much better season than I was expecting. So I think that, you know, from a depth perspective, it sounds like a really good move for them. Yeah, that should just be like the team unity thing that the Mariners have. Just everyone goes gray, like other teams will shave their heads or (laughs) grow facial hair or something, and the Mariners will just let age take its course. (laughs) Well, Kyle Seeger is growing a beard now, so maybe it's going to become a theme. Oh, how's his facial hair? Is it uh, bushy? You know, it's. uh, I I think he's still early stages, Mm -hmm. but it... (laughs) It does. It does make his his face look a little older. He can be kind of uh, baby faced sometimes, quite literally. Yes. <laughs> uh, so it it it's a good look for Kyle. Good, good. job. Good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I noticed that in a separate transaction, the Rays also acquired Wilmer Font. Yeah. <laughs> They're now the the third team to try the Wilmer Font experience. So he had a eleven point three two ERA with the Dodgers. The A's said, well, we'll give him a shot, and he had a 14.85 ERA in Oakland, and so he's just uh, making the rounds of the analytically-oriented teams here and getting progressively higher ERAs. <laughs> yeah, you, you do have to feel for Rays fans if you think of this as sort of swapping column A for font. That's that's a rough trade <laughs> from yeah. a viewing experience perspective, though. I mean, I... I would be shocked, although who knows with the race, but I would be shocked if he's, you know, anywhere near the closer role, even in their brave new world. But yeah, it's quite the downgrade. (laughs) Well, I won't insult anyone's intelligence by asking you if you think DePoto is done because he is never done. He is in a constant state of trying to improve the roster. I mean, the Rays right now are 23 and 25, and the Mariners are 29 and 20, and I'm guessing the underlying numbers are probably even closer than that. They're not even really in that different situations right now. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, the saving grace of that Mariners team is their offense, and I think that they're Mm -hmm. 
uh, probably producing quite a bit better than the the raise on that score. But yeah, if you look at their, I can just pull this up. I'll do my my best Jeff uh, sub. <laughs> Let's see. The Mariners are playing four games over their Pythagorean expectation right now, and the Rays are right at it. So mm-hmm. yeah, they're pretty close when it when you look at the underlying numbers. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we've covered what Jerry Depoto did. Hopefully he will leave us alone for the rest of this holiday weekend. <laughs> and uh, I, I wanted to ask you about this. Really, I wanted to ask Jeff about it, but he's not here. So I will ask you instead. He had a chat earlier today and someone asked him, are your work nightmares about baseball? And he said, about writing about baseball, definitely. The other week I had a dream where I was in my office like normal blogging about baseball. Then I woke up and came into my office to blog about baseball. It was very stupid. (laughs) Do you have nightmares about baseball blogging? I have nightmares about baseball editing. I Uh. have... I have hardball times related nightmares, which is not a in any way a slight against the lovely people who freelance at the hardball times and do very good work. But mm-hmm. I do have a recurring dream that I wake up and suddenly we have nothing to run for like oh, an yeah. entire week and then I get yelled at. So that tends to be my my nightmares are around the editorial calendar. Yeah. Uh, so. I feel like my nightmares froze like 15 years ago. So I only have nightmares about school related things for some mm. reason which is weird. I don't really have writing nightmares, except it's like a test that I didn't study for or an assignment that I forgot about or something. And it's always such a relief to wake up and realize that not only is that not the case, but I'm not in school, which is even better. So I kind of like those nightmares because it's always so great to wake up from them. Yeah, I I do have a, uh, and this isn't a knock against my old coworkers, I do have a a recurring dream that I have to go back to Goldman and I'm very (laughs) grumpy about it. And then I wake up and I'm like, oh no, I just get to watch baseball and write about it today. So I I can relate to your experience. It's nice to wake up and realize that life is uh, quite quite a bit better than our nightmares. (laughs) Yeah. Do you have any business words in your Goldman nightmares? (sighs) It's all business words. What a crazy place. What I don't a crazy know You've crazy covered thing. this one. I haven't heard all the business words, but when I was at Bloomberg, I heard a lot of business words, obviously, in that environment. And there are two that come to mind. One is pain point. Oh, yeah. That's, that's like, I, I don't know. It's like the... I don't even know how to describe it's like the thing that is I guess causing the problem whatever it is it's the the hang up it's yeah. the thing that you have to overcome pain point and then the other one that they would say was cycles for like it was like how many cycles will that take it was like a unit of time but it was really imprecise and I never understood how long a cycle was or what it meant, but they just used it all the time. It was like a language that I just was not privy to, but it was like a lot of cycles was like something that was going to take you all day. And uh, not many cycles was, was a quick one. I still oh, don't gosh. understand what a cycle was. <laughs> it, it may have been a programming term. I don't yeah. Know. I wonder. Cause yeah, I don't, I don't have that one. Our, <laughs> I guess our closest like tech related and this is this is everywhere now. People asking about your bandwidth for things. Oh, yeah. What's your bandwidth? I'm like, oh my god, I don't know. <laughs> Fast, <laughs> a lot, yeah. broad. DSL, what is, ISDN. Yeah, what, is the, what is the T1? appropriate unit of measure here? Even <laughs> I'm like, what? What am I denoting this in? I don't understand. Yeah. I don't know. I'll get it to you today. <laughs> All right. Well, we've relived our own professional nightmares long enough. I will let you go. 
Thank you for filling in. No problem. All right. And now we will really take a break and really be back in just a moment with Rob Arthur. So Jeff just stepped away. We lost him for this segment, but he will be back for the next segment. However, we are still two people strong because I am joined now by Rob Arthur, who just literally just returned from his Hawaii honeymoon. Rob was the MLB report that finally admitted that the balls are different and home runs are surging because of the ball. The highlight of your honeymoon in Hawaii. I cannot say it was the highlight, but it was definitely a high point. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Can you not say because your wife might be listening, or can you not say because it wasn't the highlight? (laughs) Uh, That's a great question. (laughs) (laughs) All right. You can't answer that. Maybe you'll tell me off the air. So this is somewhat momentous in some ways and in other ways not really at all because there are things in this report that we have known or strongly suspected for some time now. But it is still significant that MLB has done this study and commissioned a panel and scientists chaired by Alan Nathan came to the conclusion that the ball is different, has been different, and that that is driving the home run surge. So some of the specifics maybe are different from what we have thought at times throughout this odyssey, but the fact that the ball is different, that is nice, I guess, for MLB to come out and finally say that. Yeah, I agree. And I was surprised uh, and pleasantly so by the degree of transparency that they demonstrated with releasing not just um, the summary conclusions of the report, but the whole thing, including the data, including uh, what analyses they did and how they came to the conclusions that they came to. So it was really a, a huge step, I think, for them. Yeah, so this has been going on for a while, right? They've been working on this report since August or something like that. So this is thorough. And as you say, they have released all this information. And so there are things that we know and there are things that we know that we don't know at all, which is also interesting. So I guess the takeaway here is that MLP has reached the conclusion that it's not so much that the ball is... Well, juiced is its kind of an ambiguous term. Juiced sometimes seems to imply intentionality and sometimes implies that the ball is bouncier. No evidence that either of those things is true. Apparently, they are attributing all of this rise to the fact that the ball is carrying farther. So I guess you might say, well, who cares? The ball is flying farther. That is the upshot here, and that's true either way. But in terms of how we understand what is happening and how we maybe try to fix it, it is important. Yeah, and I, I do want to clarify one thing. They they did find that COR, the bounciness of the baseball, which is what we had focused on in our first exploration of whether whether the ball was behind the home run surge, they right. did find that it increased just a tiny bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, th- there is something there. It is probably a significant difference given the number of baseballs that they tested. But mm-hmm. it, it's certainly true that the major factor, the overwhelming thing that makes the new balls more lively is that they are less air resistant. So they just fly farther off of yeah. a given exit velocity. 
Right. And so the sometimes frustrating thing for the past couple of years is that I think it was, I mean, I don't want to say it was obvious or definitive that there was something different about the ball, but there was just no real explanation that made sense. I think really from the second that we started looking into this, we just weren't ever able to come up with another explanation that would fit the data. So it just almost had to be something with the ball. And MLB, you know, kind of deflected and it turns out that they were just not testing the thing that was actually different about the ball, right? So they were saying that the ball was not different or was not responsible because they were looking at aspects of the ball that were not different or were not largely different or largely responsible, but they just weren't really even considering the thing that turned out to be the big culprit at the time. Right, which is remarkable in and of itself. I mean, yeah. it, it, one, the way one of my friends put it is that this uh, baseball is fundamentally a projectile. So if you think about it that way, it's flying through the air. One of the most important things in projectile physics is the air resistance of the projectile, and they were never measuring that. They were never right. asking about... Um, you know, how drag affected the, the liveliness of the baseball. They were measuring things that would impact the drag, but not the drag in and of itself. Neither mm-hmm. MLB nor Rawlings themselves. And so you can take that a couple of different ways, but I think it's it's pretty remarkable that they never stopped to consider that until until really the analysis that we did and, and until this task force came along and started to question whether drag could be different. So I haven't really been paying extremely close attention to the response to this report. You wrote it up at Baseball Prospectus with Harry and some other people, and Jeff Passan wrote about it. It's been kind of floating around. I wouldn't say that there's been widespread outrage or anything. I mean, mean, it's I've kind of wondered throughout this, well, what would the response be if MLB does come out and say, yes, something is different? Because on the one hand, it didn't really seem like they had a lot of incentive to say that something was different. But what have you gathered from people either writing about this or just people tweeting at you? Are people up in arms about this? Are they saying, yeah, we already knew this? What's kind of the consensus? Yeah, I've been surprised that more people aren't upset about it. I mean, maybe in hindsight, that should have been obvious. I think talking to a lot of people over the course of the last couple of years, the common thread seems to be that everyone would be fine, is fine with home runs increasing. Um, It's more the lack of transparency and the um, lack of detail about why that's happening. So now there's a definite culprit and we all know why and everyone seems to be fine with the with the underlying fact that they're increasing so you know it does seem generally like positive i will say i think there's been some muddling or confusion around the two different questions that are involved in uh in this report one is whether the baseball changed which we now know that it did the report is very clear that the new baseballs have lower air resistance and that's what is making for so many more home runs but the second question which is one that you and i danced around in different articles is whether MLB did this intentionally or Rawlings did this intentionally. Mm -hmm. We still don't know whether the changes were made intentionally or not. I think that the report uh, shows that all of the things that MLB measures were sort of within the set of standards that they had established, and they hadn't made any outward changes to the manufacturing process that would necessarily be expected to reduce air resistance to the degree that that it fell. So mm-hmm. I think this report pushes the evidence further towards the side that this was an unintentional change. Um, but I think that there that there's a tendency to confuse 
the question of whether the ball, whether the baseball is more lively with the question of whether it was intentional or not. Those are two very yeah. different things. And I think that this report is very clear that the baseball is different. It's not yeah. as clear on why and whether it was an intentional change. And uh, we still yeah. that there's still a lot there that we don't know about. Yeah, right. We have conclusive proof that the ball is different and no evidence at all of why it's different or, well, at least that anyone actually altered it intentionally. So does the report attribute the entirety of the home run surge to the decreased drag and, and the increased carry? Is is it saying that that is 100% or is it assigning some lower percentage to it? So my understanding is it's actually more than 100%, which is interesting. <laughs> In other words, the the additional distance that um, that would come from the decreased air resistance is so much that you would have expected home runs to increase more than they actually did. Um, oh, so wow. that points to potentially other factors being involved, and it could be you know different pitching strategies or different hitting strategies or some other you know there's so many different possibilities. But basically, if you go just with the numbers that Nathan and the other scientists calculated. Air resistance is enough to explain the whole home run surge and and some more. Hmm. So that's a surprising finding in and of itself. The, yeah, because you had done all the studies that showed that this was a, an important factor, but only a, a part of it. Right, and that's what I expected to find. I was um, not a wholehearted believer by any means in the fly ball revolution or anything like that, but I thought that <laughs> batters were adjusting their tendencies to take advantage of yeah. Um, the baseball flying so much better. Um, right. That's that was one of the hypotheses that the that the report directly addresses, and then kind of shoots down, um, basically saying that they they have no evidence, or they could find no evidence that batter philosophy was responsible for driving more home runs over the fence. So. Yeah. So it, so it is surprising. Yeah, because at the beginning of this, I think when we were starting to suggest that it was the ball, there were people saying, no, it's not the ball, it's the batters, it's the fly balls. And I think we were skeptical of that. But then when it continued to rise and when we were seeing more and more home runs, I think you and I kind of came around to the idea that, okay, this is sort of a secondary effect that the ball changed in some way, and so now the hitters have changed accordingly to take advantage of that change in the ball. And, I mean, we know anecdotally that certain hitters have benefited from this, and certainly lots of hitters talk about it and are trying to benefit, and there have been some articles that seem to have shown like an average increase at least in launch angle, and then on the other hand, you've shown that some guys have maybe suffered from making these sorts of changes, so it's really just a wash, huh? Just as far as we can tell, that whole focus on launch angles and fly balls is just not at all driving the home runs. That is somewhat surprising to me. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think that we have to caveat all this with according to the data that we have available now. And mm -hmm. one of the issues with using the StatCast data that they used in the report and that we've used to analyze the fly ball revolution before is that it misses some batted balls, in particular those at very high and very low launch angles. And those, those batted balls just get sort of lost from the data set. And that complicates our ability to analyze them. So mm -hmm. every study that we do, we're doing we're doing something about those missing batted balls and it can affect what you think about the fly ball revolution. Because one of the things that comes with increasing your launch angle, of course, is hitting more pop-ups. And so it might be that there are trade-offs that um, are not fully uh, accounted for or understood in the analysis that we're doing. So a batter might be trying to swing for the fences more and lift the ball 
um, but that ends up, ends up resulting in them popping up fastballs high in the zone, and those mm-hmm. batted balls might not end up being included in our data. So I don't think the book is closed on the fly ball revolution. I think that there, there's obviously a lot of complexity, and it depends on the particular batter. There's, it's clear that some batters have experienced success by changing their philosophy in that way. But it does, this, this report definitely does throw a lot of cold water on the idea that some people have advanced that there was like a general tendency in baseball yeah. that it was experienced by a lot of different batters that they all sort of en masse decided to increase launch angle and they all sort of benefited to, uh, to some degree from doing so. It seems like there were just as many winners as there were losers. And the net effect, like you said, is zero or close to zero. Mm-hmm. So the really perplexing part here is that the study traced it to this lack of resistance or this increased carry and yet has been unable to pinpoint the cause of that. And from what I understand, I was watching a video of Alan Nathan talking about this on MLB Network, I think it was, and he was saying, you know, even if you separate it into like the the low drag balls and the high drag balls and then you compare them, I mean, it seems like if it's that big a difference, you should be able to say, oh, Eureka, here is the difference between these two balls, so this is what's causing it. And yet, no, (laughs) evidently, no one is quite sure what it is. So what are the possibilities as you understand it? Yeah, so I think there are uh, a few different things that the report points out. So one is the seam height, which is one that we knew about before, uh, because it's, it's sort of obvious that the um, the height of the seams on the baseball is going to affect the aerodynamics of the baseball. And it was known in from like a NCAA that lowering the seams can reduce the air resistance of the baseball. So the task force studied that and found that the lower drag baseballs do tend to have lower seams, but the difference in seam height really isn't significant enough to say that that's why air resistance is down. Hmm. So they kind of dismissed that. Um, and that was something, by the way, that we had found in measuring, I think, some of the balls that we had, um, that seam height was lower. But it's clear that it's not enough to, to explain why air resistance is so much lower. Hmm. So the, the two sort of novel things that they bring to bear are, one is the idea that the uh, surface roughness of the baseballs has changed. So something about the texture of the baseball. And that's not something I don't think that we had really measured. And they measure it in an indirect way in the report. Um, but they find that there is some correlation between the roughness of the baseball and the drag coefficient or the air resistance. So that's also something, interestingly to me, that the MLB's pitchers had commented on, especially during the World Series last year. Yeah. They had noticed that um, the baseballs were feeling different. Um, and so it, that seems very plausible to me that there's something different about the texture of the baseballs and that's changed the air resistance. And that could be a whole bunch of different things, right? I mean, Rawlings is um, very careful to say that the baseballs they make are really dependent on the organic components that they make them from. So in that case, this, that means cowhide. So, I mean, mm-hmm. that, that's, a, you know, the cows that go into this, the leather that comes from the cows and how it's treated all of these factors can influence the eventual surface texture of the baseball and potentially the air resistance. So um, they say that really anything in that long supply chain going from, you know, for, for example, like how the cows are fed could potentially impact this all the way mm-hmm. to when it gets stitched onto the to the baseball or even beyond that to when it gets treated with the mud that they rub the, onto the baseballs. Any of that could be influencing that surface texture in such a way as to reduce the drag. So that's one thing. 
I suspected the cows all along. <laughs> I knew the cows were at the heart of this thing. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, I mean, it is, it is kind of fascinating when you think about all the different yeah. things that go into a baseball and how every little part uh, can potentially influence the final behavior of it. Yeah, I've talked about that example in the past, like when at the 20s or just before the 20s during World War One, I, I think, where the wool that was used or it was like the merino wool or the different sheep that were used from Australia because the sheep that were being used before were not available because of the war and so it was used for the interior of the ball at the time but that made a big difference so yeah it's more complicated than you would think even though we have all the sensitive equipment now to bring to bear right but there's only so much that you can do to regulate an animal right so like you can't say like cow you need to be exactly the same as the other cows yes, that have before we before slaughter you, you right? please make sure that your your skin is exactly this smooth or rough and <laughs> You were going to suggest a, a second possible explanation too. Yeah, the other one I think is uh, in some ways even more fascinating, and that's that um, so the ball has a center of gravity that's dependent on um, the core and its relation to the outside of the ball, right? And the idea that the commission had is that maybe that center of gravity has become more pushed into the literal center of the ball in the last few years. And um, that would essentially reduce the wobble of, a, of the baseball when it gets hit or thrown. So instead of sort of wobbling around that center of gravity, that sort of wobble increases the air resistance. So if it was more perfectly placed in the center of the baseball, that wobble would decrease and the air resistance would go down. Um, so this could, this is, I think, an appealing hypothesis from, on, from MLB and Rawlings perspective, because it's sort of like maybe they were introduced this just by improving the production of the baseballs, by making the center of gravity of the baseball more perfect. Essentially, they, reduce the wobble and reduce the air resistance inadvertently because of that. And I, I like that's a factor that I had never even considered before. Um, but they do find some evidence that it occurs in the data, in the pitch FX data. So uh, that's really fascinating. And it would have all sorts of implications for pitching, considering that, you know, breaking balls would tend to wobble more because they spin more. So there's, there's a lot of complexities to that. And I don't think they fully worked out how that would work. But I know that they're studying it further, and I, I think that's a really appealing explanation as well. Uh-huh. And I think I read something from Tom Tango that showed that, if anything, this is increasing whatever is causing this. It's becoming even more significant this season, even though home runs are not up and may even be down, which means that maybe it's the weather, maybe there's something else going on. But whatever is causing this effect that is making balls carry is continuing and seeming to accelerate even. So it's not like this is something that happened a year or two ago and now it's just stable. This is creeping ever upward, I guess, right? Yeah, I haven't looked at the latest drag numbers, but I think that's totally believable. I also think it's interesting, you know, what MLB will do going forward about this. I think that yeah. the commission made several recommendations. Yeah, I was going to ask you to, to summarize, so go ahead. <laughs> All right, so the committee made these five recommendations for baseball to implement that would help to partially just to monitor the air resistance of the baseball going forward and, and partially to keep it more standard so that there aren't uh, sudden differences that crop up and radically affect the home run rate in baseball. So, I mean, the first thing is uh, just to monitor the temperature and humidity of the way that the baseballs are stored. And it seems that MLB had sort of, sort of already begun to implement this because they issued a memo prior to the current season 
that said that um, baseball should be stored under constant humidity conditions. And um, the temperature and humidity are not impacting the air resistance of the baseball so much as the coefficient of restitution, which is the bounciness of the baseball. And that was something that, as I mentioned before, the commission hadn't found was a major contributor to the home run search. But there's a ton of variation between individual baseballs in terms of that bounciness factor. And that can really influence whether a given baseball is going to go over the fence or go into the warning track. So by simply standardizing temperature and humidity conditions where the baseballs are stored, you're going to reduce that variation and potentially create a more even playing field for all of the players and all of the at-bats in, in baseball. So that was one thing. Another thing was that they were supposed to review the specifications of the baseballs um, yeah. because they had been working with a sort of outdated set that um, essentially they were cartoonishly wide specifications that a baseball could be, you know, within a quite large range of weight, within a quite large range of bounciness, um, large range of seam heights and all these other factors. And essentially Rawlings was making baseballs that were much more precise than what the production specifications were. So by reviewing that, they're hoping to kind of narrow the baseballs down to a more uniform set. Mm -hmm. And so it sounds like that they said, right, that Rawlings's manufacturing process is precise enough that it might not matter in many cases. Like the the allowable range might be really wide, but it's not like Rawlings was so all over the place that they had balls at the top end of the scale and the bottom end of the scale anyway. But I mean, it makes sense just to narrow it anyway. It's logical, but that might maybe not make that massive a difference immediately. Right. I don't think it will. Although, you know, I think that part of this is I think it'll spur like an ongoing process of review and maybe in the future as the way that they make them gets more precise, it will allow them to kind of narrow in further and further on a standardized baseball that will be uh, less and less variable from game to game. Mm-hmm. So the third thing is sort of an obvious one that I think should have been implemented probably a while back, which is just to actually aerodynamically test the baseball. So do wind tunnel testing or some similar kind of testing to measure the air resistance of the baseball so that when the air resistance suddenly starts to decline, as it did over the past few years, you're not totally in the dark about it and incorrectly denying that the baseballs have changed when, in fact, they have. Um, so I think that'll obviously, that's partially just uh, a way to keep ahead of changes in the, in the baseballs, but it's also, I think will help them understand, you know, when the baseballs have changed, why they changed. So was there a particular change in the components that went into the baseball, like we were talking about with the cows or a change in one of the machines, they'll be able to actually trace that back when they do this aerodynamic testing in a way that they couldn't really before because they just didn't have the data on it. Freaking cows, man. <laughs> cows. <laughs> Another thing that uh, is really intriguing, and it's one of those kind of hidden parts of baseball that everybody knows about but nobody really thinks that much about, is, is the mud itself with, that's rubbed on the baseballs. Mm-hmm. And apparently there aren't very precise standards for how the mud is rubbed on them. And that clearly would impact or could impact the surface uh, of the baseball and potentially the air resistance of the baseball. So that the, the fact that there weren't clear standards before at least could be one of the factors that uh, influenced the home run surge and influenced the declining air resistance of the baseballs. And it's, uh, it's another one of those things that I think it could, it could be read as embarrassing for baseball that they, they were just really sort of, you know, anything goes about this crucial thing that could really influence the performance of a given baseball. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so in a sense, the fact that this happened is good, I guess, in that it will lead to some changes. I mean, it's you know, it's not like uh, anyone suffered or died as a result of this. There's no great human cost. But anyway, if this is what it took, I guess, to get more stringent controls and monitoring and everything, it's good that that will be in place going forward. So that's the positive you could take from this. And we don't know. I mean, if MLB does figure out what exactly is causing this, then there will be an interesting discussion about what to do, right? I mean, do we decide to just roll it back to where it was a few years ago? Do we say, okay, we want home runs to be at this level forever and always, and this is the optimal home run rate, and so we will just peg it there, and that'll be that? I wonder what they will decide to do or whether they'll say, well, where it is right now is fine, but we don't want it to climb any higher than it is. Yeah, I think that's really one of the most fascinating implications of the whole report is that by monitoring all this, they will now have to make a more informed decision about what they want the baseball to be. And by changing parameters like the air resistance and the bounciness of the baseball, they can really have a profound effect on, for example, how many three true outcomes there are in a given season. Like by Mm -hmm. making the baseball bouncier, they could return baseball in some ways to a more lively, you know, lots of singles and uh, people on the bases type of game that it was before. Or, you know, they could keep going in the same direction that it has been over the last few years and basically make it a, a even more of a home run or bust league. So this kind of does put the impetus on, on MLB and on Rawlings to decide where they want the baseball to go and, and what kind of game they want to create with it. Yeah, maybe they should crowdsource it. Just, you know, how many home runs do the fans really want? Or ask the cows what they think about all of this, how how rough they want their skin to be. I mean, that's kind of interesting because you'd want that data, right? You'd want to know what your fans want, what they want the game to look like. And maybe they're already doing some surveys like that, but... That will be an interesting thing if they manage to pin this down, then they kind of have to figure out this is what we want the sport to be. And Joe Sheehan was raising this in his newsletter the other day. He was pointing out that we only know about this because we have this data at our disposal, because we have... StatCast, essentially. I mean, that's how we learned about the difference in air resistance, and those reports prompted MLB to actually look into this. So if people hadn't been testing it independently, then probably nothing ever would have been looked into and nothing would have changed. And so in the past, when home run rates would fluctuate, no one had that data. And, you know, there was just no one able to check that. And so it's completely plausible that whatever is happening now could have been happening at any point in baseball history. I mean, pick a year when there was some unexplained difference in offense, and maybe it's the cows. Yep. I I think that is also really interesting, that this is really the first time MLB has released this quantity and quality of data into the public domain. And it's mostly concerned with just the home run surge and the years immediately prior. But there are a few charts in the report that go a little further back, and that might be some of the most interesting stuff in the whole uh, commission's work because, hmm. like for example, there's this one figure in the report, figure 42, that shows the bounciness of the baseballs going back to 2003. And you can see in 2004, the coefficient of restitution, the bounciness of the baseball, which is probably the most important parameter for determining whether uh, a given baseball is going to get hit for a home run or not, 
um, that COR number was much higher than it was even just five, six, seven years later. So that era that we have long associated with steroids and with uh, hitters being artificially enhanced to hit more home runs, you know, maybe not all of that was because of just the hitters. Maybe the ball was a factor in those years yeah. as well. And that's something yeah. that's long been long been conjectured and long been hinted at. But um, until they released this data, there really wasn't a lot to draw on to say that the ball was definitively to blame. And now, now I think it just goes to show you that, uh, like you like you mentioned, the ball could have been fluctuating a lot from year to year in previous uh, eras and in ways that really profoundly shaped the game. Yeah, and Joe was making that point about the so-called steroid era, and I just wrote about this recently for my chapter in Mike Pesca's book, Upon Further Review, about what-ifs, and I was trying to say, well, what would have happened if baseball had started testing for steroids earlier? Anyway, in the course of that, I kind of considered this because, of course, you can't really just reflexively blame it all on steroids, the home runs of that era, when we are currently in an era when people are hitting even more home runs and everyone is being tested. But there were some differences in that era that make you think that something was going on, which you've written about also in the past, and just kind of the pattern, the distribution of the home runs. Obviously, you had guys hitting 60, 70 home runs, which is not really happening now. So the outliers were outliers by much more than they are today. And also the aging patterns were very different. So the league was just old in terms of the productive players. So those are things that make you think maybe there's something to the the chemical idea as well. But it's probably too simple to say that it's just that because we're seeing right now that other things can affect this stuff dramatically. Yeah, I think every era is going to be shaped by multiple things. And I think there's no question that steroids were a factor in the steroid era. I mean, there's mm-hmm. so many aberrant patterns that it's it's tough to conclude that there wasn't something else going on. And I think that would be the case over any, you know, five or 10 year stretch of baseball that you examine, there would be something, whether it was changing mound heights or new training methods or an influx of talent from a certain region of the world or whatever it was, there would be something going on. But I think previously we had kind of had this, all had this default assumption that the ball and the, the bats and the, the, the equipment, at least the baseball itself being the most important part was sort of the same for going all the way back. And now I think this report is really opens the door to challenge that and to say, well, actually it was fluctuating. It was moving around. And that was probably one of the most important factors on top of all those other things I mentioned that was influencing how the game was played at any given uh, era in baseball's history. All right. Well, anything else stand out to you from the report? Anything you're still wondering about? Lingering questions? Follow-up work? Anything we haven't covered? I mean, there's still a lot uh, that I wish I knew about, you know, how the baseballs were manufactured and all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff that they, they go into some detail about, but obviously they can't release everything, if only because of the, some of it is, you know, a trade secret that Rawlings mm-hmm. can't give up, understandably. But, uh, you know, overall, I thought that the report was incredibly, incredibly well done, and incredibly detailed and answered most of my questions and, and basically told us why we were seeing a lot of the patterns that we were seeing, um, even the the cases, uh, the couple of cases where I had made errors or had incorrectly concluded based on the data that we had that, for example, uh, weight was a significant factor in the home run surge. Um, it explains exactly why uh, we found the things that we did when we x-rayed the baseball. And, and so I thought overall it was really conclusive and um, 
it, of course, it just opens up more questions, but it sort of succeeded in closing off this round of uh, why did this happen? Why did the home run surge take place? It was very clear in uh, answering those the, the, those initial that initial round of questions. Yeah, at least we can finally stop with the, is it the weather? Is it the batting order? Is it rookies coming up? Is it pitchers getting worse? It's not. <laughs> so that's, that's, I think, a relief. So we can say case closed about some things and case open about other things. But this is progress. Right. Agreed. Okay. All right. Well, you can continue to monitor Rob's work on the subject, of course, at Baseball Prospectus or elsewhere. And you can find it all on Twitter at no underscore little underscore plans. Rob, thank you as always. This is probably what the, I don't know, the fourth podcast we've done about the ball and the home runs and everything over the past few years. But gradually we're getting there. Yeah, far and away the most satisfying of the four or five that we've done. That's true, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, good talking to you. Yeah, good talking to you. So we will take a quick break, and we'll be back in just a moment with Mitchell Lichtman, renowned sabermetrician, co-author of the book, creator of Ultimate Zone Rating, who tell us how betting on baseball used to be like taking candy from a sports book. Some of you may have read the Bloomberg story earlier this month called The Gambler Who Cracked the Horse Racing Code. It was about Bill Benter, who's made close to a billion dollars, that is a billion, betting on horse racing since the 1980s. And there was one passage in the story that caught my eye. It said, Benter has few regrets. One relates to an attempt in the early 1990s to create a model for betting on baseball. He spent three summers developing the system and only broke even. For him, a stinging professional defeat. America's pastime was just too unpredictable. But I knew or thought I knew someone who had bet on baseball with some success, and so I contacted him. He is Mitchell Lichtman, and you know him perhaps as MGL. He is, of course, one of the authors of the book. He is consulted for teams. He is a prolific writer and analyst, and he is joining us now. Hey, Mitchell. Hey, how you doing, Ben? And Jeff. <laughs> we are doing well, and I am very eager to hear about whatever you're willing to share here. So I know that you spent some decades betting about baseball, it sounds like, with success. So can you tell us the origin story? How did this start? Okay, sure. Well, for one thing, uh, I didn't win a billion dollars <laughs> like Bill. <laughs> I'll start with that. And if I were Bill, I don't. If I had his money, at least I don't know that that I'd have any regrets. Yeah. At least professionally. <laughs> Actually, I do know, as I indicated in my email to you, Ben. Uh, I do know uh, Bill. I had some dealings with him uh, about 25 years or so ago. Uh, he he's an ex blackjack player, as I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a sort of a good lead-in to the origins of my sports betting, and uh, ran into Bill actually a few years ago at a uh, what they call the blackjack ball, which is kind of a, a secret meeting or party that they have every year of uh, of present and past professional blackjack players. Not secret uh, anymore. He's a real good guy. Good guy. Not secret anymore. Yeah, I just let the cat out of the bag, I guess. Yeah. So, <laughs> it used to be infiltrated, or at least uh, that was the rumor, by uh, casino personnel so that they could uh, identify a card counter so they can more easily, uh, you know, keep them out of their casinos or, or bar them from their casinos. But 
that's neither here nor there. So yeah, so my original background was um, as a professional blackjack player in the early and mid '80s, uh, and then I, I ventured into the uh, poker sphere as well. So I was a professional poker player as well. Got a little bit tired of of the stress of uh, playing blackjack. It was sort of an adversarial profession, mm-hmm. whereas uh, poker kind of a walk in the park compared to a uh, blackjack uh, stress-wise. Mm-hmm. Uh, since the casino was your friend as a poker player, they didn't care whether you're a winning poker player or a losing one since your money came from the other players, not from the casino, of course. Mm. Uh, blackjack being just the opposite. So anyway, so uh, I sort of transitioned uh, from um, blackjack and uh, poker into, uh, I say sports betting, but really exclusively on baseball. I, I never got into uh, betting any other sports but baseball. I know very little about about uh, betting on the other sports. And I got into that in the late 80s uh, after sort of independently reading some of the early sabermetric works, mm-hmm. uh, books like uh, Bill James' Abstract, Hidden Game of Baseball, of course, mm-hmm. Pete Palmer and John Thorne, some of the other ones, Diamonds of Praise, uh, even Mike Gimbel's early works. He put out some really interesting and very good books uh, similar to uh, the Bill James' Abstracts uh, also in the early uh, 80s. Mm-hmm. Diamond of Praise, another good one. Craig Wright and another co-author. I can't remember the name of the co-author. I think he was a, a baseball guy, and Craig Wright was a statistician. I think uh, I, I read I read about that stuff uh, independently, just really uh, predicated on my interest in baseball and analytics, statistics in general. Although I was by no means a statistician back then, I'm still not. I guess at best I'm sort of an amateur statistician now. So. Um, Read up on those things, got interested in them, knew nothing about sports betting really at all, um, other than just what I had read and, and heard uh, living in Las Vegas, which I was at the time. Mm-hmm. I, I, I moved to Las Vegas in 1981 to uh, pursue a, a blackjack career and then, and then poker career. And then um, I had just gotten the idea that I think I might be able to use these concepts, these sabermetric concepts, to put together a model for projecting or predicting uh, the outcome of, uh, of a game. And, uh, and then if I can do that more efficiently than the sports books and the betters at the time, again, this was in the late 1980s that uh, I thought I could get an edge, mm-hmm. make some money. So I did some testing and lo and behold, uh, using a, a database of some old lines that, that I had gotten from an old company back then, you know, lines from the probably mid to late 80s or so, it looked as if from just a fairly rudimentary sabermetric model that I could get a pretty substantial edge. And so we started uh, betting. I say we, I had a couple of other partners um, that I solicited Mm -hmm. from the uh, poker world. We started betting in the uh, second half of 1989 and did quite well and continued that for about 25 years. (laughs) That was a story. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to ask whether it was the the baseball analysis that got you interested in the baseball betting or whether it was the baseball betting that got you interested in the baseball analysis. Would this sort of also be for the way that we all on the Internet are familiar with you is as a foremost predominant sabermetric thinker and analyst. But is this also the origin story of how that all began? Uh, to some extent, well, uh, like I said, I, I think the uh, interest in the uh, baseball sabermetrics was really independent of the uh, of the gambling, the sports betting. I just had an interest, always had a lifelong interest in baseball, like most of us did. You know, starting from when we were kids. Definitely was an analytical person, and all of my gambling forays were were analytical endeavors. Of course, blackjack and poker being 
analytical professions, at least if you're if you're uh, a winner. So uh, really, the interest in baseball spurned uh, the uh, interest in betting. And then ever since then, again, this was 1989, so this was almost 30 years ago, hard to believe. It really went uh, hand in hand uh, since then. You know, uh, a lot of the work that I've done in sabermetrics over the years has very little to do and, and really very not very advantageous to uh, to the baseball betting and uh, much of it went hand in hand with uh, with the models that I use for baseball betting and, and were advantageous for baseball betting so a little of both so you said that you started uh, you started actually betting on baseball in the second half of 1989 so how long did it take you before you decided your your models and your tests were let's say implementable to uh, to actually put your money where your mouth was how much did you how much work did you do before you actually started to give it a shot in the in the real world you know i don't remember exactly but i would say probably probably 6 months to a year the reason that i started in the second half of 1989 was simply because i wasn't ready until then so basically i developed the models which compared to the models that that I and lots of other people have been using, say, for the last 10 years. They were extremely primitive. They were good and they were accurate, but the technology and the information just wasn't out there back then. So I back-tested uh, those uh, fairly simplistic models, although compared to the way lines were made by the sports books, you know, these models were revolutionary. Even if you, even though if you looked at them now, they would look uh, pretty simple by sabermetric standards. So I back-tested them. They look great. We started uh, betting in, uh, like I said, the second half of the 1989 season, right after the All-Star break. I don't know the exact numbers, but I'm pretty sure that we started out and continued like gangbusters. <laughs> don't know if we you know, had a positive fluctuation to any extent back then, or the lines were just so bad that you know, our, our expectation was to put a pretty big hurt on the sports books. I, I think mostly the latter because we continued to uh, do very, very well for many, many years yeah. before gradually the, uh, the lines and, and the betting market itself started to get more and more efficient. And, and, and they started using more and more technology and sophistication to put out the lines and then to uh, change the lines once they were put out, you know, the other betters basically. So it became more and more difficult, but for the first 10 or 20 years, it was, I think the, the, the expression that I used in the email uh, that I wrote to you, uh, Ben, was uh, it was pretty much a candy store yeah. for, uh, for a baseball better back in the, uh, say, the 90s at least. Yeah. So did you have to go to any great lengths to obscure what you were doing? What kind of volume of betting are we talking about? How would you actually place <laughs> the bets? I mean, how did it kind of work on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, it's good. Good questions. Uh, getting into some areas that I may not be able to answer uh, <laughs> uh, in whole, I guess. Uh, although most of the statute of limitations have probably run out. <laughs> I get of course. <laughs> Let's see. Volume-wise, I would say back then we probably. When I say we, there were a number of partners. So this is not necessarily you know money coming out of my pocket that that I was betting for myself. But volume wise, based on on my models, my projections, we probably bet anywhere in the neighborhood of maybe ten to fifty thousand per per bet. A little bit more on sides where you bet on which team is going to win. Mm-hmm. Uh, than totals, which is where you bet on whether the score is going to be uh, 
exceed a certain number or um, or be less than a certain number that the sports book puts out. Totals are more difficult to uh, bet a lot of money on for whatever reason. The uh, sports books uh, were always a little bit uh, shy about taking a lot of money on the uh, totals bets compared to the side bets. But so so probably on the order of ten to fifty thousand uh, dollars back then. We're talking about early nineties. Obviously, sports betting uh, was legal and prolific in in Las Vegas, the only state where you could uh, make a uh, a legal sports wager. There were other avenues and areas where you could bet, and we definitely utilized those. (laughs) My partners were in charge of that. I had nothing to do with that whatsoever. (laughs) Uh, I won't go into detail about those avenues. Uh, Not that I really knew that much about it uh, back then either. So uh, even if I wanted to, I probably couldn't tell you. But uh, And that was sort of uh, pre-internet sports wagering days. Uh, The internet sports betting didn't come to fruition until maybe middle 90s or so. And what kind of margins were you getting at the time, and how did that change over the years? Yeah, that's a great question. It's hard to say. You know, the market changes. Uh, it's a very dynamic market. definitely changes over the years. Generally, the uh, margins that any uh, successful sports better can get, especially based upon information and te- technology, it usually diminishes uh, as time goes on, which was the case for us. Probably when we first started, I would say on the order of maybe 8 to 10% advantage per wager. <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> uh, which is, to be honest with you, that's, that's unheard of. And uh, and most most even knowledgeable handicappers yeah. probably wouldn't even believe that, you know, if they heard that, that kind of number. You know, people that have historically bet other sports uh, would be more than happy with a 3, 4, 5% advantage. Anything over a 5% advantage would be considered almost unattainable. But mm-hmm. again, the... Uh, the, the market was just so inefficient back then, at least in baseball. I couldn't tell you about the other sports that we were able to get about an 8% to 10% edge. So basically uh, for every $1,000 wager that we, we would make, uh, our um, expectation would be, uh, say, 80 to $100. And that probably, it didn't really diminish uh, quickly until maybe after 2000 or so it probably remained fairly constant uh through the uh, 90s and then it started to diminish a little bit i would say in the 2000s and so then moneyball spoiled everything about, oh yeah well <laughs> lots of things moneyball baseball prospectus fan graphs uh zip steamer uh joe pita uh you know just the internet in general just yeah just the spread and the and the the breadth and the wealth of information available really um, spoiled the whole thing. So probably starting five, six, seven years ago, our edge just diminished precipitously to the point where I honestly don't think that anybody uh, using a, a sabermetric model can really beat baseball anymore to to any significant extent. So obviously in the last five, 10 years, it's been a lot more difficult. And as you just said, it might be next to impossible to actually make money using ethical means to betting on baseball. But back, back in the day, what sort of, what, what cutoffs were you using to identify when a total or when a game was, let's say, bettable versus when you would leave one alone? If you, if your estimated total was, I don't know, a half run higher than what the line was, was that something where, where you would strike or would that not be enough? 
Yeah, it sounds like you know a little bit about uh, baseball betting. Uh, you know that 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 was arbitrary. It's always arbitrary. What there's no real cutoff. I would uh, set a line basically for each game, um, a line for the game, uh, for the side, which team, uh, you know, what their chances of winning uh, is, and then a line for the total, what what the what what my model projects the average or the median score would be for that game, and then we'd compare it obviously to the. Uh, to the uh, numbers that we can get from the sports books. And um, if they were significant, you know, I, I had in my little betting programs, I, I, I had certain thresholds, but they were basically arbitrary. Back then, if there were a difference of, like I said, a half a run, that would probably probably be enough to um, bet that game. Uh, the more the difference uh, was, uh, obviously, the bigger edge that we presume that we had. And, and, and that bear itself out in the at the end of the year, you know, when I looked at the numbers. Uh, uh, typically, uh, the the bigger the difference uh, between um, what the sports book uh, project and what I projected, the the bigger edge we had, the more money we won on those bets. Um, so yeah, I mean, I mean, but especially back in the day, we we had games where there would be a run uh, or more difference uh, in my total and their total, and even in the lines. As you know, in baseball, you typically bet into money lines, so a team might be a minus two dollar favorite, which would mean that if the the sports book uh, presume that uh, they were a two to one favorite to win the game. They would win the game two thirds of the time. And, uh, you know, we had lots and lots and lots of games again, especially back in the, in the, in the nineties where the sports book might have a team as a $3 favorite, which is almost unheard of these days. But back then, if, you know, a good team with a good pitcher played a, a bad team, they wouldn't hesitate to, to post a line of $3, 280, and oftentimes I would have that game lined as, you know, $1.80 or something like that, which would be a tremendous difference. And again, if we uh, look at, uh, at those types of bets and those types of games in the aggregate at the end of the season or the end of several seasons, you know, it would turn out that the games that I thought should be lined at minus $1.80 and they had minus 260 in actuality, you know, would win, say, two-thirds of the time. So the actual line should have been... Two dollars instead of two sixty, which is what the sports book uh, was uh, putting out for the line. Did your testing determine what was the greatest source of your edge? I mean, was it park factors, for instance? Was it your daily player projections? I mean, what was the big difference that you had over the the house, the book? Yeah, and that's another great question. You know, I didn't. Most of my research wasn't what they call in the stock market. You know, fundamental type uh, research. It was more technical. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I had that reversed. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> if I do, somebody will figure that out. But um, <laughs> but I didn't so much look at sort of a, a Bayesian approach, which would be okay. Is this line likely to be inefficient to start with? Basically, just use a a, a technical model to uh, to figure out you know what the line should be and compare it to uh, what, what the line is. But to at least partly answer your question, back in the day, again in the in the early 90s and certainly before that, um, when I did my testing, because a lot of the testing I did was on 80s data, they had almost no concept of park effects. <laughs> I specifically remember us, for example, betting unders like crazy for the first few years in Houston Astrodome, mm-hmm. which of course was a no- notoriously uh, difficult park to hit in for various reasons. So uh, yeah, a huge aspect of our totals edge was in park factors, which they apparently knew very little 
to nothing about, um, which is surprising because even if they really didn't understand the concept of park effects, you would think they'd be able to figure out, well, somehow every time a game is played in the Astrodome, you know, the score is uh, three to nothing, two to one, uh, you know, one nothing as opposed to um, Boston or Wrigley Field in the summer or something like that, this pre-Colorado days, obviously. As far as sides go, Ben, and in general, lines back in the day very much reflected a lot of public superstition and sentiment. Teams that had been, you know, on a winning streak, uh, the line may be inflated in favor of that team by 10, 20, or 30 cents. If the uh, uh, same thing with a particular pitcher, if a, you know, if a pitcher had been on a hot streak uh, or, or a cold streak for a few games or a few days, the line would be inflated or deflated towards or away from that pitcher. Again, in an incorrect and efficient manner. So that's, th- those are ways in which that we would um, get a, uh, an edge because obviously my models uh, uh, didn't reflect things like uh, hot and cold streaks, uh, especially at the team level. And, and those kinds of things gradually disappeared. Like if you look at like a correlation now between you know, a team winning streak and, and whether the line uh, is inflated or deflated, you know, towards or away those particular teams, you're going to find almost no correlation now. You'll find a, a little bit when it comes to uh, pitchers and maybe team run scoring and that sort of thing, but not nearly to the extent that, that you would find uh, back in the uh, 90s and uh, I presume uh, before that. All right. So at this moment, we uh, we seem to be looking ahead to a near-term future of legalized baseball betting. And at this moment, we're also looking ahead to a present and future of almost impossibly impossible to make a profit baseball betting. So given the difficulty of, of betting on baseball, again, I don't know if any of us know anything about the other sports, but given how difficult it is to do anything with baseball betting, do you have you observed or do you think that there is going to be any relationship between that truth and the reality of legalized betting? Will people be deterred at all or will people bet just because you can bet? No, I mean, you know, um, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's certainly uh, it, 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 the percentage of the what, what they call the public or, or the or the dumb uh, money, you know, compared to the total pool bet, bet is, is very large. It, it, it's less than it was, again, back in the day because so many uh, smart bettors got into the market um, in order to take advantage of these inefficient lines. Probably a lot of them have gotten out in the last few years, but you're still looking at 90 or 95% of the market is just a casual better, the, you know, the average fan, the average gambler, or the, uh, like, like in all gambling circles, uh, people that, you know, think that they have a, a mode or means of, of handicapping uh, sports, but don't really. Uh, so I don't think that'll make every dif- any difference at all. Uh, you know, gambling um, is a, a very prolific activity. I, uh, last year or the year before, I think Vegas took in about Five billion in wagers. I believe the estimate for extraneous sports betting, so-called illegal sports betting around the country, is on the order of about seventy-five billion dollars a year. <laughs> That's a lot of money. Now, granted, uh, plurality of that is on football, whether it be in Vegas or probably even more so on the in the illegal market. But uh, most people bet on football. Then basketball is the second most bet sport and then baseball but baseball is not really too far behind these days basketball and football so out of the 75 billion dollars Ben, that's being wagered a year now in the illegal market i would guess probably maybe 10 billion of that is baseball so that's a lot of money uh, being bet on baseball 
And not all of that, but a lot of that obviously would be transferred to these new betting markets that open up. I, I read something the other day that said something like in the next two years, like 32 states will pass some kind of uh, sports betting uh, law that enables them to open some kind of sports betting venue. And uh, of course, you know, New Jersey is, is on the verge of doing that right away. I think Pennsylvania might be doing that right away. So yeah, there'll be, I, I, I don't think the notion that people can't beat baseball anymore and that it used to be a beatable sport first of all i don't think that's very well known at all <laughs> who would know that <laughs> except for your listeners of course now but no i don't think that's going to be uh, affect the uh, the proliferation of uh, sports betting uh, given this uh, this supreme court ruling mm. And you mentioned that via email that you were placing along with your partner something like a 1100 wagers per season and you know, with somewhat substantial amounts. So you would kind of move the lines at times, just yourself putting these bets down. Oh, How yeah. did that affect things? Yeah. Anybody uh, that makes a substantial wager on a game, especially in baseball, because again, the volume is not nearly uh, what it is in, in, in the other sports, especially uh, NFL. But um, yeah, anybody that makes a large wager uh, on, a, on really on any game is going to move the line around the country and all the sports books. They communicate now. They have uh, you know apps and databases where they can look in real time at what all the sports books are doing around the country. The internet, the overseas ones, as well as the ones in in Las Vegas, the licensed ones in Vegas. And um, so yeah, I mean we were always moving the line substantially, especially on totals. If we made a large bet on a total, um, then it might move. 30 or 40 cents or might move a, a, a half a run or something like that. And then on, on a side, a little bit less, but on some games, it, it, it would move 10, 20, 30 cents uh, after uh, we would make a bet. Not, not only would uh, you know our money influence the line move, but there are what they call in the uh, industry followers. So people that would be following us mm. or maybe uh, some other sports groups. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask if you had rivals or you know main competitors that you were trying to keep up with or stay ahead of yeah yeah we did we did um there were some other groups out there even even back in the early days there was a some groups that concentrated mostly or exclusively on totals because they were so easy to beat back then so there were some total groups that were big rivals you know sometimes we'd be on the same side sometimes occasionally we'd be on opposite sides that'd be fairly rare but, um, you know, we'd be on different games quite a bit of the time because we had different methodologies. I think I was probably one of the first, if not the first person to really use an exclusively sabermetric model. You know, some of these totals groups, they probably had a notion of uh, park effects and things like that. So they could get a pretty big edge just, just using that alone. But, yeah, we had uh, there were um, there were some uh, really early groups uh, in my email to you. Um, I mentioned uh, uh, the original computer group and they started in uh, the early to mid 80s. As far as I know, they didn't do anything with baseball, but they were using computer sort of early sabermetric models for other sports, or at least analytical co computer models, you know, to take advantage of the sort of the superstition and the public mm -hmm. sentiment that was reflected in the lines. And, and they concentrated on, um, on college sports and possibly NBA and NFL back in the early to, to mid 80s. But as far as I know, that, that was uh, Billy Walters, who's in jail right now, I think, for a securities <laughs> yeah. fraud. But um, <laughs> Uh, I don't think he was a rival uh, for me for baseball, but there was another group called the Kosher Boys in New York, and they were a pretty big rival, and they had uh, 
They had computer guys that were using sabermetric models in the 90s as well. But there, surprisingly, there were, really weren't that many rivals back in the day. I'm sure. So this is probably how you met Tango Tiger. You were betting rivals <laughs> to uh, 20, 25 <laughs> years ago. So given given that... <laughs> Given that baseball got so much more difficult and it essentially pushed you away, there just wasn't money in anymore. Did you ever extend and express any interest in, in trying to bet on another sport? Or is that just, are they too far out of your wheelhouse of knowledge or, or have they all gotten smarter around the same time? No, that's a great question. Uh, the other sports, uh, basketball lends itself to a similar model. Probably, you know, the only other sport that really is uh, sort of at least somewhat individualistic like baseball. Obviously, there's synergistic effect in, in basketball, but not nearly as much as there is in, in some of the other sports. So um, I definitely toyed around with basketball about 25 years ago. So maybe five years after I started the baseball and uh, like Bill Bentner, uh, that one of my regrets was not that I wasn't successful at it, but that I, I, I never indulged in it. I, I put together some really nice models for basketball and I think I would have done extremely well but to be honest you know I was just so exhausted at the end of a baseball season that I just didn't have the energy to to put the the time and the effort which is a lot into a basketball so I just kind of never really pursued the uh, basketball model for for the NBA but I think it it would have done really well the NBA uh, lines were extremely inefficient again also back in the 80s and 90s and a very good friend of mine who also was an ex-blackjack player, he had some computer models that he started about the same time as I started baseball, and he's been unbelievably successful at that, uh, mostly in the NBA, but he also did other sports. And yeah, a little bit of a regret of mine. I think it would have worked uh, really, really well. Uh, the other sports did and do lag behind baseball in terms of the efficiency of the sports book lines, Ben, and that's because as you know, or as you can imagine, you know, the, the information on the internet and, and in other venues is not nearly as uh, robust in the other sports as it is in uh, baseball, not even close. You know, you have sites like what football outsiders or something or APB metrics for basketball, but never really got the traction that uh, baseball did. You know, baseball probably, I would say at least 10 times the robustness in terms of the information available than the other sports. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the information when new information would become available if, say, PitchFX comes out or something. Can you derive a, a temporary advantage from that? Or, you know, how did you try to stay ahead of the books as time went on and they kept cutting the margins? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I thought when, when data like that would come out and, you know, wasn't generally available to a widespread extent to the general public. Uh, like you said, pitch FX data, stuff like framing data, uh, the concept of catcher framing. And then uh, I think baseball perspectives, you know, they still do or they used to put out catcher framing data. And, uh, you know, I thought that would be a boon to my model. Um, and I used that data as quickly as I could. Uh, catcher framing was a good example that I thought, oh, this is going to be a boon to my model. The market was already in decline. I thought that, you know, I'd be able to climb back into the market, but it just didn't work out. I'm not exactly sure why. I think just the market degraded so much that, uh, and at the same time, I think other people and the sports books themselves were utilizing that kind of data as quickly as possible. So it just became impossible to stay ahead of both 
the sports books, Ben, and, and they use computer guys. They use computer models now. They have sophisticated models. You know, you had, uh, what was the name of that finance company that ran, they ran, they, they run a bunch of uh, sports books in, uh, in Las mm-hmm. Vegas. And it was a, you know, a billion dollar finance company. Uh, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but they, uh, you know, they had at their uh, disposal, they had uh, massive uh, uh, staff of, uh, of, of big data experts and IT experts, and they were using them to help create the, the opening lines. So it just became so difficult to beat these lines between the sports books being sophisticated at creating the lines and the betters coming in right away as soon as those lines would be put out and they would, they would move the lines, they would make them more efficient. That even with, uh, with this new data coming out, uh, framing data, pitch FX, stat cast, it just became too difficult to beat. You know, you can maybe, you know, you'd lose 3% here from the uh, efficiency of the lines and the efficiency of the betting market. And then you'd get back, you know, a tenth of a percent from, from this new data. It just, just wasn't enough to overcome the, uh, the efficiency of the lines. Mm-hmm. And then maybe lastly, I don't know that you'll be able to answer this, but I guess, A, I know that you did some consulting for teams at various points. Did that affect your, or did the betting affect your ability and or willingness to work for teams in some capacity? I I imagine that some team would have liked to have your model for itself, but that probably would not have been as lucrative for you, which leads to part B, which is, I know you were not making Bill Benter money, and I don't want to pry, but can you, can you, I, I mean, uh-huh. this was a full-time job, I assume. Was it all you had to do? Was it retirement money? I mean, I don't know. Can you give us any sense of, of how well this worked, I guess? Well, it wasn't Bill Bender money, so uh, I can say that yeah. unequivocally. The first question I really didn't influence my work with the teams. You know, my work with the teams was pure, 100% pure, nothing I would hold back from mm-hmm. them. You know, I had proprietary projection models. I gave the teams everything I had. And, and of course, you know, it's comforting to me knowing that what I gave them, of course, it wasn't like they were going to go post it on the Internet, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've been real, um, you know, I don't want to use the word generous because, you know, I, I, I don't want to sound like uh, I don't want to beat my own horn here. But, you know, I've given like, um, you know, my UZR work to a fan graph, let them publish that stuff. I've published a ton of stuff for the public because I, cause I enjoy it and I like to share my work with the public. You know, I've done well. I'm not a greedy person. So that answers the first question. Second question, the amount of money. I, I would say this, uh, that's, that's been my means of income mostly for the last 25 to, you know, 25 years or so. Although, although like I said in the email, um, I don't really do anything anymore other than just a little fun betting during the postseason. And postseason lines, by the way, much less efficient than regular season, much less efficient, mm-hmm. even now. It's just a lot of public money that comes in um, and a lot of public sentiment that is reflected in the lines in the postseason. So dollar-wise, I mean, I was, a lot of the money that was made, Ben, from my models um, didn't go directly to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I would say probably, w- without saying anything about how much money you know I've made over the years, I would say probably my models have probably generated on the order of maybe 50 to 75 million dollars maybe something like that just a, a wild guess and i would say most of that <laughs> a lion's share not going to me <laughs> all right so i'm not i'm not in the bill bentner uh, category <laughs> 
And I'm sure of that billion dollars, obviously, I mean, that's a lot of money that, 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 that can feed a lot of people. Um, but, uh, you know, he had lots of partners too. Um, in, in fact, uh, one of his partners, uh, was old, old blackjack buddy of mine. The, the first guy that I, uh, teamed up with, uh, back in, uh, Atlantic city in the, in the, uh, early eighties, uh, to play blackjack with, he went on to be one of the partners with, uh, with, uh, Bill. I won't mention his name cause he's kind of a private guy. Not quite like Tom Tango, but, uh, <laughs> right. All right. Well, this has been enlightening. I wish that I had been betting on baseball in the 1980s with a, a sophisticated model. <laughs> um, I came around too late, but uh, it sounds like you could have just had Marcel back there and, and made a killing, I guess, at that point. So we missed our chance, but oh well. So <laughs> yes. I appreciate your sharing all this uh, interesting history with us. And of course, people know about the book and they can find you on Twitter at Mitchell Lichtman, or they can just write a analytical article about baseball anywhere on the internet and you will magically appear in the comment section like a genie <laughs> and so point out right. exactly yeah. what could have been done better. And I'm sure that you are right most of the time, but uh <laughs> thanks for coming on and sharing all right ben jeff thanks a lot appreciate it it's been a lot of fun thank you and don't forget to wave to bill bentner's yacht from your rowboat <laughs> <laughs> he's a by i i think i may have mentioned it but he's a real nice down to earth guy uh in addition to being real bright yeah i think he's a mit grad if, if i remember correctly so. all right you guys take care all right thanks so way, way back at the beginning of this episode, I expressed some interest in having John Jaso on the podcast. I put out a call for Jaso assistance. No need. I am rescinding the call because I am currently on a group text with John Jaso, and he says he's pumped for a podcast, so stay tuned. All right, that will do it for today and this week. You can support this podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. As an added perk for some of you, we have pre-recorded the next episode, which we'll be releasing probably on Monday, long weekend, so everyone will get it then. But if you are in our Ned Garver Club on Patreon, that's $10 per month or more, you'll get that episode early. As soon as it's ready, those messages will go out try to do that from time to time. We don't often pre-record, but when we do, the Ned Garver Club gets to listen a little early. After all, we've just saved you a bunch of money that you would have wasted betting on baseball, so maybe put part of that toward Patreon. The following five listeners have already pledged their support. Joe Simmons, Joseph Garino, Bertil Spolander, Michael Webb, and Frazier Dennison. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild, and you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. Keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via email at podcast.fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system. Have a wonderful long weekend if you're somewhere that celebrates Memorial Day and we will talk to you next week. A bloody nose Empty pockets A rented car A trunk full of guns Check out time is sundown in Las Vegas, but it only rises one.